the best, most green building is the one that's already built. So people doing as-builts and things like that, like what you guys a lot of times will help with too, that is like oftentimes the key to being able to hit our carbon targets. Like if we just renovated a few more buildings, I think there was something from MIT where it was like, I want to say it was like under 10% of the existing buildings, if they were renovated, we might hit a lot of our carbon targets just because there's so much carbon in an existing building that if you just renovate it and reuse it, that's the greenest building that you can get. Welcome to Buildings 2.0, where we dive deep into the technology, trends, and visionaries reshaping the very structures we work in. Here is your host, Jose Cruz Jr., CEO of Integrated Projects. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Buildings 2.0. Today, I'm speaking with Patrick Chopson, co-founder, chief product officer at CoveTool. Patrick, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, this is wonderful. Lovely to be here. Let's dive in, man. So before starting CoveTool, you studied mechanical engineering, architecture, and then I saw you later got a master's in high-performance buildings. So maybe a good starting. Why buildings? And what got you excited about them? That's a good question, I guess. When I was in high school, I was always really interested in like just things that are technical. And then I got this book called Color Drawing by this guy named Michael Doyle. He's like a famous hand-drawn artist or architect. And I read that book and I got really excited. And then I decided I would read every book in the library about architecture, good and bad. And this is like in Indianapolis where I'm from. So it was kind of an interesting thing. I really wanted to get into like the whole buildings world, but no one I knew was an architect in my family or extended family or any friends or anything, because I come from a very working class background, not too many professionals. So I kind of relied on books to help me know what to do. And some of the books I read were outdated. So I started off working for a mechanical engineer and I went to school for mechanical engineering first because Indiana is one of the few states where you can actually design buildings as a PE. <laughs> and stamp the drawings. That's not the case in other states. So that was kind of an interesting start to my journey. But I've always been really interested in like the technical aspect of how engineering, architecture, and technology kind of mesh together. And so that really gave me a really interesting background where I was learning things in mechanical engineering school that I wouldn't have learned in architecture school, but able to start putting those pieces together, which ultimately led to where I am now. But I think it's kind of an interesting start. I think a lot of people, when they become architects because they know someone or who is an architect, but a lot of times people say, oh, I wish I was an architect. I think for me, it's like been a lifelong dream to be able to pursue architecture from a design perspective, from and practice, but then you're kind of like looking at how people design, thinking about how do we save the world <laughs> through decarbonization, buildings being 40% of all carbon emissions really helps kind of focus me on what I do on a daily basis, but always in the back of my mind, I always still love to design and I always do a couple of projects a year all. I'll uh, design something and stamp the drones. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think what you're highlighting there is important. Sometimes when we talk about architecture with a capital A, there's so many different perspectives. In my experience in architecture school, there's this, either the folks that are drawn to like iconic kind of brand name architecture, there's tons of debates about the history and the eras, whether focusing on more kind of aesthetic or style versus performance. How do you think about that? So you're at the intersection of not just architecture and out of energy, but also running a tech company. How do you square that circle? Like, Yeah, if you look at it, like throughout history, there's been like ebb and flow in architecture between people who believe that you can do it computationally. <laughs> so if you kind of go back to like the 1700s, they were looking for the perfect proportions and how to like create rational beauty and order. 
if you kind of look at that, there's these guys like Ladeau in France. They were all like, oh, let's make a system. And then there's other people that was like, no, it's not a system. It's all art. And then you would swing back the pendulum to maybe the 1800s, where it's a lot about ornament and style and things like that. And then it swings back technical again when you have like Corbu and you have people who are like, no, billions of machines, that kind of thing, like the Bauhaus. Then the reaction to that is postmodernism, which is like we swing back towards decorative things. We swing away from the idea that a building has a function that it performs and then that function can be rationally developed. And then there's people like Christopher Alexander in the 1970s who were like, wait a second, I think we can make a pattern language. And there was other folks who kind of built on top of that to create kind of this more computational idea that you see kind of emerging again. And then building performance is a way to measure the effectiveness of a design, but it doesn't necessarily govern the aesthetic of it. So I think like what we're kind of seeing right now is with climate change and various other constraints of technology on buildings, we're kind of swinging again into maybe similar to the 1920s, we're kind of swinging into the 2020s, thinking a lot about how we maybe swing away from like that irrational narrative-driven workflows or like postmodern thinking and more towards this idea that you could quantify a building and maybe computationally derive a building and you could generate a building. There's all these like, no one has yet figured out like what is the zeitgeist, I would say, of our century. But I think that it's just a natural cycle of architecture where we are dominated to more or less extent by one ideology or another. But it kind of takes a few decades to emerge as to what the new thing is. But really, if you think about it, at the end of the day, we could go back to like the 1800s, pull an architect out of that time, time travel him to the future now, and just like say, look, do your thing. And a lot of the things would be the same, except for maybe they wouldn't know how to use Revit or what a computer is. But at the same time, they can still look at the drawings and tell you that the section was wrong. So I think that there's a lot of interesting things, how we're kind of like see this ebbing and flowing of technology and art. And like the pulling of that is where we negotiate what is architecture. If you extend that timeline, what are examples of either projects or firms or even maybe individuals that you see are pushing the boundaries until the current chapter that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at kind of the technical side of things, obviously there's a lot of great digital practice managers, different firms that build internal tools. Like we interact with a lot of those folks. Um, you can certainly see that more so it's like the tech companies. If you look at TestFit, certainly my company, CoveTool, we do some of that stuff as well. But there's a lot of like the topologic guys. We got IPAR, everyone who does stuff with Grasshopper, right? Those people are the minority typically who are trying to push for this idea. Also, you kind of see some of the workflows at some place like big architects where they do have, I've been to their office before, they do have a lot of beautiful computational workflows, but they always get stuck at certain points in that process where they have to go back to the conventional architecture. And that's why the cycle of design iteration slows down at various points, but also why they can deliver such interesting designs, even for competitions. It's not because they're better designers. Well, they got good designers there, obviously, but the tech setup that they have is also very forward thinking. So I think that's kind of an interesting when I kind of think about different firms, we got obviously folks are using like AI generated images, but I think that's more of a fad, in my opinion, than maybe like the real work is the information and managing that information. And I think that there's a lot of tech startups in the AAC space that are trying to do something with that, but it's, it kind of remains to be seen. What is the emerging methodology there for sure? I want to circle back on that a little bit later, like along titled some of the emerging trends we're seeing in tech. But walk me through really quick, what success for a building, well, the kind of race to zero concept, 
what needs to be true. And it's not lost on me that from A to Z, if you consider the entire supply chain, the owners themselves, the ecosystem of service providers, like architects, engineers, contractors, the tech that's emerging, the building products that need to come online just to even be able to service. But what do you find from your end needs to be true at scale in order for us to make a real dent? You mentioned a stat that I think keeps me up at night as well, is that 40% of all CO2s within our building footprint. It's a lot of buildings. Yeah. What needs to change? Yeah. I think the business, the model of architecture is a backwards looking model because you're protected by a stamp. So you're not like innovation is not intrinsic to how you win and work and make money. So you make money because you've learned things in the past. You make money because you have a tried and true workflow that allows you to deliver a building with the least amount of risk. So because of the way that people build, they build projects based on the project. And so like a lot of the work has to be built to that project. And so there's not very much room for overhead, which means there's not a lot of room for software, technology, innovation, even training people, it's overhead. So there's a natural tendency to discourage people from learning new things because it would hit overhead. So I think what I see is that the industry as a whole, despite its best efforts to decarbonize or think about that, has had a lot of words, but the business model itself is kind of like dead weight that holds holds us back. So there has to be like some other source of change. I think one of the biggest changes was the Inflation Reduction Act in the sense that one, there's the buy, the federal purchasing requirements now require them to buy low carbon materials. That's incentivized manufacturers to go out and build plants that produce low carbon materials. Also, the Inflation Reduction Act has like billion dollars set aside for code improvement. So code people are going to adopt new codes. Another thing, obviously, it's like one of the most transformative things that's ever happened to the building industry, but we don't all know about it because <laughs> uh, it's not really in the news, is also the grid decarbonization. So that's where like there was so many carrots in the bill in terms of they didn't do a lot of sticks. It was mostly incentives to get you to switch your power plant to use no carbon or low carbon sources, so solar, wind, and whatnot. The actual power companies who've been blocking climate legislation for the last like 20, 30 years all got together to support the Inflation Reduction Act because of the tax credits. They can actually sell those tax credits on the open market when they decarbonize. So there's like so much money to be made in decarbonization that I do believe that the grid will actually hit our targets for you know climate targets, which is crazy. So I think that's one thing that's really going to help. The other thing that I think is helping is the materials going down in carbon. And so I think those two things together is probably how we get there. But I don't think it's going to come from like architects themselves definitely should make the changes, but it's happening so slowly and there's reasons it's happening slowly. It's not for lack of desire. So I think you have to think about the problem in a more holistic way. It's like an entire supply chain the power it's like the clients you got to like go out to all the different participants and find ways to chip away at that mountain a little bit at a time yeah this is something that keeps me up at night i whether or not the exact figure is true something close to about 1.6 billion buildings right and so i'm just doing back of the napkin math if in fact we've got about 26 years you divide those numbers by 365 i think you come out to something like 168 thousand buildings, more or less. Even if not all of them have to get to zero, the vast majority of them are larger. We're talking hundreds of thousands of buildings per day. This is something that keeps me up at night because to your point, one thing is the technology that needs to exist in order for us to be able to service 
these buildings at scale. But I think what's becoming clear for me is that as software advances, as we're kind of on this, what I would consider to be the second or third wave of both SaaS eating the world and the chapter that we're in now, even the largest architectural and engineering firms in the world, I mean, even when you stack them up, we're nowhere close to that number of certain signals. And we're talking about digitizing, meaning like answering what exactly is in this building in the first place. So then determine what we should do. And then once you determine and assuming that governments are ready to start permitting work at scale, then you got to find the products and the people to... I struggle, as optimistic as I am, I struggle to see unless there's a profound paradigm shift in the business model itself that likely has to look closer to technology than a traditional service-based approach, which you highlighted is, is a challenge in and of itself because there's no incentive AUC firms to be proactive unless they actually land work. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's where I see like AI making the big impact for decarbonization because there's so much interconnected information. People can't learn it. So the great thing that I see is that right now you can go in chat GPT and ask, Hey, I need, I want to make a green building. Tell me a bunch of strategies and tell me what assemblies I should use. In the American context, it will deliver probably a pretty good recommendation for that. The next question you'd ask is, help me run a simulation. And they'll be like, well, I can't do that for you. So I think what I've been seeing is that people need an easy button where they just say, I need a green building. And all the recommendations are provide them as if they're speaking to a consultant. Problem is we just don't have enough consultants. So that's why like I've been working on that. But I think like just overall, what I'm seeing is that buildings, when you think about it, like the best, most green building is the one that's already built. So people doing asphalts and things like that, what you guys a lot of times will help with too, that is like oftentimes the key to being able to hit our carbon targets. Like if we just renovated a few more buildings, I think there was something from MIT where it was like, I think I want to say it was like under 10% of the existing buildings, if they were renovated, we might hit a lot of our carbon targets just because there's so much carbon in an existing building that if you just renovate it and reuse it, that's the greenest building that you can get. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps the best analogy that I've been able to come up with, and I'm not sure if it does it justice, but you see the impact of hardware technologies and things like x-ray in healthcare. And I, in many ways, see the parallels between healthcare and buildings, right? The human body has certain systems. And unfortunately, unless you know what's kind of going in, inside these systems, it's really hard to be proactive until something happens. Usually at that point, it's kind of late. And so we're in this interesting chapter in real estate where I'm paying close attention to a variety of different technologies, hardware, specifically LIDAR and the cost of LIDAR, the availability is something that we're paying attention to. And then of course, in our particular case, the ability to convert LIDAR based outputs, which usually have kind of low use cases into things of value like 3D or 2D plans so that folks can kind of take it and run with it. In many ways, this kind of healthcare building analogy is kind of where we're at with buildings right now. It's like, we can't, I've talked to some incredible commercial landlords, as sophisticated as some of these organizations might be, they often cannot readily answer a really basic question like what exactly is in your building? Something as simple as a floor area or just the quantity of certain pieces of parts and pieces of your building, HVAC, ducts, piping, et cetera. And until something happens, like a federal mandate or something breaks, we're stuck in this kind of really long building life cycle until we just wait until something happens. My hunch is we have to figure out a way to be just way more proactive. And if we do that, my hunch is that business models might change. So instead of architects just kind of waiting for an owner to invite them to bid, 
one of the things I get excited about is kind of digitizing buildings is one thing. We are answering here is what is. And then if the owner has control of that data, owns that data, their ability to then proactively go out and start to identify what to do with it is uniquely possible. But a few things have to change, I think, what you're suggesting there. I'm curious, in your case at Coke Tool, I guess we all kind of play a small piece of a much larger puzzle. What's success for the company in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think this year we were focused on two things. One, our project assist, where we actually deliver the reports using AI and then building the AI that supports the two big things that we're working on, just also smoothing out the interoperability is another thing that we're working on. So between 3D applications, it's really hard to import geometry, as you know. So being able to figure out ways to make that smoother and also to combine that with AI, I think has been our primary focus. For example, someone does ask, I I need a green project. It can be oftentimes the extent of what they know, or they have a standard that they're supposed to comply to that's an RFP. And they're like, I don't know, I've never done this, or my firm doesn't have people in-house. So you kind of see a lot of the small firms being negatively impacted by as more and more regulations and more and more considerations come into play. Traditional small practices, which make up about 89% of all firms, really struggle to be able to deliver against those new standards and goals and objectives. So if we can also, I think another promise of AI is the ability to guide and provide that expertise that maybe some of the small firms don't have so they can continue to produce more um, bespoke buildings with like, you know, a lot of small firms produce a lot of cool projects. So it's kind of an interesting thing, but they may not have that expertise because their principals may have graduated in 95 and they, they may not be up to speed with the latest energy modeling, things like that. So when I think about success for us, it's mostly about looking at those objectives, figuring out like, are we delivering the thing that allows much wider percentage of the buildings field would be simulated. So like originally when I first started a consulting practice, then I made the software to automate that consulting in the hopes that providing a more simple to use software, like a SaaS model, would allow more and more people to be able to simulate their buildings. And it did. But if you look at the AIA 2030 reporting numbers, CoveTool had like about a 2% increase to the number of firms that were able to have in-house modeling. So it went from like 9% to like 11%. And then buildings went from like 40% of reporting firms in firms, 40% of their projects were reported. And then once GovTool really picks up, then it gets to like 60% because we're used by a lot of the AIA 2030 firms. So you can kind of see that there's an impact, but looking at the overall, all the buildings out there, then it start to realize that really it's a very small subset of firms and a very small subset of people in those firms who are able to even still use a SaaS software. And that can be true of anything, like it doesn't matter what software that you have, probably in a firm, a smaller number of people can access it, but they all need the value. So then we kind of look at the next step is like, how do we use AI to deliver the thing that we were doing in the software and training people on? Let's just give them the thing. And I think that's like the next step in all software companies is to move beyond interfaces. And you kind of see this in a lot of the Silicon Valley pitch decks and stuff that are coming out right now, nine out of 10 or almost 10 out of 10 of them have some AI component to them where they're doing VAST or value as a service rather than SaaS, which is software as a service. Because people learn software to get value, but you can use AI to get to the value without using the software. So I think that's kind of like the big thing that I see is happening to most companies over the next 12 months. Yeah, I see a similar kind of pendulum swing where perhaps the last five, 10 years, or frankly, if you even look back the last 20 years of kind of software as a service and 
specifically in the venture space, kind of pattern matching like the same SaaS B2B 90% gross margin model. And ideally, that's the dream. One of the things that I haven't been able to reconcile is that I think the last five or 10 years, 15 years, whatever, has done a great job digitizing text and images and documents. I still feel that the physical stuff, the buildings actually have been quite stuck. Of course, there's been advancements in certain areas around buildings, but the things themselves, if I were to flash back to 1994 to now, unless you're talking about a trophy property and the class A buildings in New York City, the most part, buildings kind of look pretty similar. One of the things that I suspect is that this kind of new chapter of companies and typically either supported or powered by AI are going to go from this kind of software as a service to just simply kind of software facilitating service or just doing it for folks. Yeah. To your point, going from like an interface to actually just connecting dots and moving things in real life or just not having to train someone how to use a new software, just kind of giving them the thing. It's, yeah. it's fascinating because I wonder how do you think about that in kind of the context of as you built the company having to think about monetization and connecting that with your personas. Yeah. When you think about like a more of a vast model where people are paying for outputs, then you have to think about it more in terms of how a traditional consulting practice might do its thing. There's so many sub-consultants for architecture and buildings and whatnot, and they all do different things. But at the end of the day, they kind of have to get requirements, then produce work product, explain that work product. And a lot of that is done via email. <laughs> So yeah. there's a lot of information that's just being transferred with spreadsheets and emails and PDFs around between all the different participants. And so inserting AI into that process is just about figuring out what is the corpus of knowledge that this consultant world does, and then how do we deliver against that? And it's probably some type of hybrid between humans and machines. AI is really good at certain things, but the boundary between what a machine's good at and what a person is good at is not like a concentric circle. It's more like a squiggly line between the two. So some things AI is really incredible at. Other things right now, it's like really sucks at. So but when you put a human and machine together, you're going to get a much better product. So when we think about how do we business model deliver something like that, you need to think about instead of it being recurring revenue with a software subscription, it's more like services as a subscription. And I think that's where you're able to get a recurring retainer. And I think that's how like a lot of software companies are going to start looking at that as like, you pay me X amount of money, just like you would a consultant and you can build it to a project. But at the end of the day, I'm using some combination of tech and people to deliver it to you. You don't care. You just want the thing that you came here for. I think that's where a lot of VCs now are becoming aware that that's actually a real thing that you could have a retainer and it could be recurring. And it's not just rigidly looking at how many subscriptions do you have? Exactly. I'm curious. There's few folks that have taken your journey from engineering to architecture, you, you worked as a designer and now you're running a tech VC back tech company. In that journey, curious, I mean, how are you doing personally? And like, I assume from the time you started to now, personally, you probably believe things now that you didn't believe before, vice versa. But curious, is there anything that stands out as kind of lessons learned in the last few years running CoveTool? Yeah. Obviously, the big brown paper bag moment is when you raise like a big round. We raised, I think the other rounds were like, this is exciting. The one that kind of like made me be like, whoa, was when we raised like the 30 million round. That one was really insane because it was like, wow, there's a lot more responsibility that I have. And not just as 10 that I built. This is like an actual company that, you know, now I have to like make sure that the, so I think the thing that I, if I could go back in time and give myself advice, there's a few things I always say that you should focus on now in my mind. One is execution. So it's like on a daily basis, how are we measuring how well we're doing? 
are we executing against that thing in a sustainable way? So it's like, you can make a big sprint and try to do something, but are you thinking about like the overall health of the team doing that? Like another thing I didn't realize was that when you start a company that is mission-driven, a lot of people that join that have a particular point of view around that vision. And so as your startups though, they have to evolve and change constantly. So that change management becomes more difficult if someone is like invested in a particular vision of the company that may not be economically viable. So I think like kind of learning from that was helping people understand the differences especially for an AEC-based startup between AEC where you work on projects from start to finish versus tech, where it's based on a two-week sprint and you have to be like intellectually flexible to be able to handle change on a regular basis. Like your job is going to change this time next year. It might be totally different right now. But that's a hard thing for someone who's an AEC expert to kind of like get their head around. But you still, the only way you can make an AEC-based startup, startup is actually have technical experts on your team. Right. So you need them, but you also need them to think like they're in a startup, not in a architecture firm. You know, so exactly. it's kind of like, I would say that if I had to give myself advice with just like how to coach people to understand that more so that they don't kind of like, aren't constantly feeling like, oh, well, well, well this thing I did, now we're not doing that. It's going into the Indiana Jones warehouse of lost ideas, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like Raiders of Lost Ark, they're kind of pushing the ark into that giant warehouse. You know, I think a lot of times that's how people feel about some project that they worked on in the startup, but doesn't mean that thing's lost forever. It's just, it's on a shelf. We may come back to it. road mapping, design documents. These are things that you don't really know when you're coming out of the AC industry, but how to work with the software team, how to build components and pieces and do it in stages. Understand that there's like an MVP and you need to test against that MVP. Don't keep building things if you haven't validated if the MVP works or not. Lots of things like that. On that note, what does your day-to-day look like today versus say day one? I imagine you went from probably having to do everything yourself with small co-founders to, I assume, what, meetings all day or now kind of navigating a larger ship. Yeah. What's that look like? I think like the big difference is like early on, it's the job of every founder and every person on the team to sell. So you got to do a lot more like going out there. Like I used to travel and be in a different city every day. (laughs) Year one, two, three, those were like, that was a big part of my time was just constantly going to different places. Now I have other people that do that. So I have time now to think, I guess. So a lot of my day goes to, I'd say probably two thirds is looking at people's stuff and kind of giving feedback like, hey, you guys are doing this thing. I think that's great, but what about this other question? Is this question answered? Oh, let me connect you to someone else. So there's a lot of that, mm-hmm. like connecting and enabling people. So like getting roadblocks out of the way is mostly what my day goes to. Right. And then I always reserve some time thinking through problems, thinking through things I haven't thought of, maybe doing research myself on something, talking to ChatGPT, asking myself questions, you know, what am I missing from this idea? There's a lot of like ways that you can kind of get feedback from yourself and others, AI, and have like a work environment where you're constantly trying to think about why do people behave the way they behave? Because in the perfect world, you just make a thing and people use it. But there's always some technology and psychology behind and how those things interact is like, what's the difference between a product that succeeds versus one that is a perfect product that fails. So it's kind of, I'd say that's where most of my time goes nowadays is like more of the thinking and giving feedback and connecting rather than the person who's like going out there and selling and coding and things like that. Yeah. You talked about selling. What are your thoughts around pricing? And the reason I'm asking is because earlier you mentioned, again, when you consider perhaps some of your target personas, think about architects and kind of business models that they exist in that may look differently 
than how you think about it in tech. Are there any lessons learned or any kind of behaviors you've noticed when thinking about pricing when it comes to product for? Yeah, I mean, like the one thing I didn't know starting off, which I wish I would have known, is that SaaS just doesn't really work for AC. It's not just such a small fraction, like 5% of the budget of every all the money that an architecture firm spends each month. 5% of that goes to software. And of that 5%, 4% goes to Autodesk. <laughs> so <laughs> there's only 1% of the total budget available for technology as an overhead spin. Wow. So if you're going to make a software in the AAC space, you must consider how does this get billed to a project? Because that's where 90% of the total spend of the firm is going to delivering projects. So like that's employee time, whatnot. Like most employees, you try to hit like a 90% utilization rate in your firm. That's really high. Like software engineers, it's like 70 to 80%. It's insane. So like basically 5% of the overhead is just people going to the bathroom, eating food, you know, talking, whatever, <laughs> getting coffee, maybe that's like 5%. And so like that 90% they're trying to hit is like someone's working on a drawing, making a client call or something like that. So you need to figure out like, how does your technology live in that part of the budget per project basis? And I think if you figure out that, that's how you achieve widespread success. You know, really at the end of the day, like Autodesk is kind of a tax, you know, on the industry, you could say, but they eat up all the tech budget. So you have to think about more creative ways, I think, to make money. And so that pricing means is the willingness to pay is insane if it's part of the project. If it's not part of the project, it's crazy because training time also factors in the cost of the software and that hits the overhead. So again, you don't have a lot of room there. So like, do people go to coffee or do they sit in your training? Most people choose coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm taking notes here. I think in the last few years, I'm curious, was there a specific like moment or specific client where you had like this aha moment. It's like, why not just consider not just kind of overhead expense, but like we got to start thinking. Like yeah. There's this major three-letter architecture firm, which I'll not call them out right now, but like they had a $20,000 code tool subscription that was for them to use every single project. They had like a plan that was supposed to be like unlimited, right? Obviously consulting is really expensive. So if you learn it in-house, theoretically they could have been making hundreds of thousands, even million dollars a year using yeah. our software with that 20,000 investment. But they didn't factor in is that to have a team of 10 people using our software and keeping them trained was going to cost them about $350,000 plus the $20,000 software subscription. So it was like, from their perspective, the cost of Coke tool was about $370,000 per year. So that's nuts. And so I think as a software company, you don't think about that, but that's kind of true if it's a technical software. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But then like they were going to cancel. They're like, Cove Tool, we love you guys, but our team just won't learn. They don't have time to learn. We can't get the value out of the software. So then we were like, well, what if we did it for you and we upload the projects for you? How much would you be willing to spend like $250,000 for us to do that for you? Because we know that's about 100K less than what you just told us it would cost you to do it. And they're like, yeah, all day long. Where do we sign? So they signed a deal immediately, with, which in AC, nothing happens immediately. It takes like weeks, if not months in a reasonable sales cycle. Your close rate is usually not a good close rate for AC because it just takes a long time. People may eventually buy your software, but a new software can be like, have a close rate of like less than 15%, which is kind of like the industry average for SaaS. But, you know, for AEC, it could be like eight to 15%, somewhere in there. Yeah. So I think like when we saw that happen, like, wait, 
these guys would have taken maybe years to buy a $250,000 software subscription. But when it was repackaged as a service, they bought that in like a couple of weeks. Wait, yeah. that's like a 10x revenue difference. So we started like working on that. Yeah. And that's where I think like we've seen a big inflection point in the history of CoTool is, wait, we just need to like stop trying to sell that 1% and sell to the 90% of the budget. Right. I think what you just said really resonates with me because I'm juggling a few factors. One is I know that some of the money that's been invested into this space in the last five or 10 years, again, is trying to kind of pattern match like a kind of a very specific SaaS model. When I sit down with customers, whether that's folks in large AEC firms, I'm hearing something that doesn't completely sit well with what we're kind of being pressured to there, specifically if you raise money from like venture back players. Now, to your point, I think that the mentalities are evolving. But what I'm hearing on large AEC firms is like, please do not come with me with yet another SaaS description that I'm going to have to then advocate for my team, train everybody on my team, pay a yep. subscription, make sure everybody's actually using it or adopting it. And I think that there's this embrace of like, hey, we don't mind as long as you just do it for us. Like, don't make me train my people on how to use the tool. Like just, and I'm seeing that specifically with an AEC, it's like there is an embrace of just like, hey, services that are tech enabled or just powered by something else. It's a much, much smoother conversation. Yeah. At least it tends to be. And it better aligns with, I think, more of an on-demand model where AEC is seems to be very much kind of at the mercy of the next project, right? And thus less willing to commit long-term to certain subscriptions if they know they have one or two or 10 or 20 active projects, but it can't really have too much foresight into the Yeah. AC software fails for the same reason that Bird and Lime and these other scooter companies didn't take off because the utility of the scooter only exists when you walk out the door and you see the scooter and you get on it. Now you're using it. But otherwise, that scooter just sits there. Maybe it gets vandalized, whatever. So the cost is ongoing, but like, unless you're paying to have a scooter right there every day at 4 p.m. There's no value to you if you walk out and you don't see a scooter. You're not going to get on. You're going to just call an Uber or get on the train or whatnot, right? So there's like, in the same way, when we think about it, unless there's a current project that they need that software for right then, a lot of times you can't justify the spend. So that's where like the similar problem starts to occur. So I think like the more that AEC startups can focus a lot on the per project and the on-demand model, the more likely it is they can achieve a scale that is going to allow us to like solve big problems like decarbonization, digitization of buildings, digital twins, you know, all the different things everyone's working on, right? Or like even just computation, we could generate a building, but no one's going to pay for that software. But maybe they need someone who comes in and helps them do that for like that one time they need that, that one discrete step in the process. Because you think about a lot of the services that you need as an architect, you only need it once at one specific point in the project but you don't want to pay all year to have that capability when you know you're not going to use it. So there's kind of like that, that tension that exists is what we as a tech industry have to overcome. Right. Patrick, it's been super fun, man. I wish I could geek out with you for a lot longer than this, but I think some of the subjects we talked about, whether it's emerging technology, emerging business models, the state of where commercial real estate is, landlords and selling in, I think all of which we can double click, do a part two, three, four, but super excited that uh, you took the time to chat today with me. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm going to be in New York next week for the New York Build Expo. So if nice. you're there, uh, maybe I'll see you around. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll be there right alongside you. So I'll probably see you there. Awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, <laughs> it was speaking to you today. Awesome, man. 